This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to meet together this morning to study your Word and to fellowship around the teaching of your Word. Father, we thank you that we live in a nation where we have these freedoms. We thank you for the leadership that we have in this nation. And Father, we pray that you would continue to give that leadership, both political and military, uh, wisdom and skill in the execution of their decisions. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect and watch over this nation. And we know that no matter what we do, our security is not dependent upon the efficacy of our own military or security forces, but is dependent upon you. Father, ultimately, as goes a believer, so goes the nation. And Father, we pray, continue to pray that there would be believers who are positive to your word, and we pray that there would be pastors who can accurately teach your word, and we pray that there would be evangelists who could accurately proclaim the gospel. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and challenge us with them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 3 John. 3 John, and we begin our new study this morning of the third epistle of John, which is actually the shortest book in the New Testament and in the Bible, even though it has 14 verses in the um, it has 14 verses, and Second John has 13 verses. Third John is actually shorter in the original Greek. It has only 219 words. Let me read the opening four verses, which we will be studying in the next few weeks. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things, and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Third John is a book that is going to, a short epistle that is going to reiterate and reaffirm some of the basic uh, elements and the basic doctrines that we have already seen in First John and Second John, but it is also going to bring in an entirely new dimension that we have not looked at in either of the previous epistles. There are several uh, comparisons between both Second and Third John to show the similarities, but they are not uh, identical epistles. First of all, the author in both both epistles describes himself as the elder, Second John verse 1 and Third John verse 1. The author describes himself simply as the elder. We know from two or three uh, lines of evidence that it is John. First of all, we know that he was the uh, pastor in Ephesus at the end of his life and that he called himself the elder as opposed to the apostle. By that stage, the apostolic era itself was drawing to a close, and during the end of his life he functioned more as a pastor than he did as an apostle, that is, an apostle going out and traveling throughout the Roman Empire or beyond. Second reason we know it is John is because of tradition. Tradition tells us that these two epistles were written by the apostle John, and then third, the vocabulary of the epistle and the style of writing in the epistle 
fit that of the Apostle John. So the author simply describes himself in both epistles as the elder. Second line of evidence, second point of similarity between Second John and Third John, the recipients in both for both epistles are described as those whom he loves in the truth. Actually, a better translation is by means of the truth. Love is always based on absolute truth, integrity of the soul. Where there is no integrity in the soul, there can be no genuine biblical love. This is stated in both 2 John 1 and 3 John 1. Third similarity between the two epistles, the recipients are the occasion of great rejoicing on the part of the elder. 2 John 4 and 3 John verse 3, he says, I rejoiced greatly. So they are the occasion of great rejoicing on the part of the author. Fourth, the author mentions that the re- recipients in both epistles walk in, or that actually a better translation is they walk by means of the truth. That means they are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Their life is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, and the recipients are those who are advancing to spiritual maturity by means of application of doctrine. So they are walking by means of the truth. Fifth, the elder has received good reports about both. The elder has received good reports about both, both the congregation, that's the recipient of Second John, and the individual involved in Third John. The verses that indicate this are Second John verse 4 compared with Third John verses 3 and 5. The sixth similarity between the two epistles is that both letters contain a warning. Both letters contain a warning. Second John 8 warns of false teachers. Third John verse 9 warns about an individual who is causing trouble within the, congreg- uh, within the congregation. Um, we do not know the location of the congregation in Third John any more than we do Second John, and that is just left to speculation. Both letters contain a warning. Seventh point, the elder desires to see both groups face to face. Second John, he says, I have many more doctrines to communicate to you, but I will wait until I see you face to face. And he makes a similar statement in Third John, verse 14, I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Recognition that face to face teaching is superior to any other form of communication. Point number eight, others sent their greetings. Others sent their greetings. There are others who are with the elder when he writes and are familiar with the recipients of the of the epistles and send their greetings along with it. So these eight points show various similarities, but it just shows that there is a close relationship between these two epistles, but they actually deal with different issues and different themes. In Second John, we saw a strong emphasis on Christology, and in this issue, or the issue facing uh, the congregation here is the issue of divisiveness, the issue of grace orientation, and especially uh, financial support and logistical support for missionaries. So this is a, one of the major themes in Third John. Third John is, as I said, a, an extremely short letter. It's a personal letter written by the elder to an individual. As such, it is parallel to Philemon. These are the only two epistles in the New Testament written primarily to an individual. Uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus were written to pastors, and the implication is that the information in those particular epistles was not only addressed to the individual, but also to the congregations uh, they were pastoring. Whereas Philemon and 3 John deal with personal issues related to primarily to an individual. So Third John then revolves around three particular individuals, three particular personalities. Gaius, who is the recipient. Diotrephes, mentioned in verse 9, who is the troublemaker in the group there. And Demetrius, who is probably the messenger who is bringing the letter from the elder John to Gaius.
John in this epistle constructs this letter with key words. And just as we saw in Second John, if you look at the key words that are used in this epistle, it gives us a clue as to the doctrines that are being emphasized. Four times he refers to Gaius, the recipient, as his beloved. As his beloved. So that emphasizes a close personal relationship to Gaius and will bring to the forefront the doctrine of friendship, the doctrine of love for other believers in terms of a personal love and a friendship love. So four times he, he calls Gaius beloved. Seven times in verses 1, 3, 4, 8, and 12. Verses 1, 3, 4, 8, and 12. Seven times he mentions the word true or truth. The word true or truth. This is a synonym for doctrine in the sense that it describes the characteristic of doctrine. Remember, Jesus prayed to the Father in the upper room discourse, Sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. This is not a reference to lowercase t truth, but a reference to the fact that the Word of God is absolute truth. It defines truth so that all other principles must be evaluated in the light of God's Word. Now, we live in an era today when there is a tremendous attack on the doctrine known as the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. And the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture teach is really a corollary of the overall doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture and the infallibility of Scripture. That God so constructed the uh, revelation of His Word and His will that He covered every possible category of problem that any believer would ever face in life. So that Scripture teaches that that God has supplied everything for us in terms of life and godliness, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. This means that the Word of God is sufficient, that you don't need anything else other than the doctrinal principles revealed in the Word of God to face and handle any situation in life. But a lot of people don't accurately apply the Word, or they don't like the results of the application of the word, or application of the word seems to be too tough and too difficult. And so you always hear people who say, well, I tried that, but but doctrine really doesn't work. It isn't that doctrine doesn't work. It's that you're not walking by the Spirit and you're not applying the word correctly. The word of God is sufficient and a way around this that sounds good to people, and you'll hear this little catchphrase from some folks, it's actually become a slogan in some circles, is the phrase, all truth is God's truth. And this is particularly used to justify uh, so-called Christian psychology and Christian counseling. And let me break this down for you to see what they're actually saying. By all truth, what they're talking about here is is truth that is derived from that area of observation called natural revelation or general revelation. Now, general revelation technically refers only to the non-verbal. Let me put that word up here for you. The non-verbal revelation of the power and majesty of God given through His creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And that is restricted. The heavens do not declare... Uh, in terms of general revelation, the um, the theory of relativity as espoused by Einstein, the heavens do not declare the law of gravity as articulated by Newton. The heavens declare the glory of God. What has happened today in theology, and this is what is being taught in some seminary classes and in some 
uh, theology textbooks is that natural revelation goes beyond the nonverbal revelation of God's character and it includes anything and everything that is discovered through empiricism and through empirical science. But see, the information that comes through empirical studies in science is not information that has always been available equally to every person uh, since Adam. General revelation is restricted in its, con- in its scope and concept. It refers only to that revelation which relates to the existence and character of God. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God, what are we talking about? Knowledge about God, it is in that sense an objective genitive. Because what may be known about God is manifest in them. Manifest means that it is clear, phanerao, it has been revealed, it is clear in them. For God has shown it to them externally. God has shown certain things about himself to people. Explanation given in verse 24, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. It's not muddied, it's not fuzzy, it's not uh, ambiguous. The scripture says that certain attributes of God are made clear to every person and at all times in history. Because of the creation, since the creation of the world, not since there were certain discoveries in the 16th century or certain discoveries in the 18th century or certain discoveries in the 19th century, but since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." What this means is that in general revelation, there is a restriction to nonverbal revelation that focuses on simply the attributes of God. Now this, what happens today is to get around the principle of the sufficiency of Scripture, people come along and they say, well, there are really two books. There's the book of Scripture which is the verbal revelation of God, or what is known as special revelation in, 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 in theology. And then there's a second book, which is the book of natural revelation or general revelation, and that is nonverbal. Now, here's where the error occurs. The error occurs is that they look at these two books of revelation and they put an equal sign between them, that they are equal, so that the information received through creation, through empirical studies, through science, can then be used to evaluate and interpret Scripture. What this effectively does is that clear studies that have been developed through the historic principles of exegesis and sound, literal, uh, literal, plain, literal, historical, grammatical, hermeneutics are changing because certain so-called truths are being discovered through science, through psychology, sociology, and then that is being used then to evaluate scripture. What it should look like is this. You do have a book of general revelation, but it's restricted to God, and then you have another book of special revelation, and this is specific content-oriented information that God has revealed, and this is used then to evaluate general revelation conclusions and determine whether or not these are true. But first of all, general revelation does not include, never has included, uh, science, sociology, or psychology. This is an inappropriate application. So special revelation always is used to evaluate the conclusions we derive from empiricism. We can look at nature 
And we can see many, many different things. For example, you can observe an ant colony. And one of the things that you could observe is that ants are extremely strong related to their their size. They can lift seven times their own body weight or something like that. And that ants are extremely industrious. You can also look at the social structure of an ant colony, and you have one queen and many, many males who serve that one queen. Now, which of these observations can we use to apply to human society? Well, the Bible tells us that, in fact, in Proverbs, we're told to observe the ant and notice how the ant works, and that should be a model for how diligent human beings should work. But the Bible gives specific revelation related to social structure and marriage, and it is one male and one female, and the male is the leader, not the female. So you see, natural revelation or the study of nature can derive many different empirical truths, but the Bible tells us where we're supposed to make application and restricts our, our, our provides boundaries for the conclusions we derive from empiricism. All of this is to simply say that we are not to make the mistake of saying that that all truth is God's truth. There are many different kinds of truth. There are all kinds of contingencies in truth. And what we are talking about is absolute truth that is irrefutable and undeniable, and that is in, in, that is what the Word of God is, a truth with a capital T. So seven times John teaches or emphasizes the concept of truth or doctrine, so this will be an emphasis for us is on the Word of God as absolute truth. Five times he mentions the word witness. Five times he mentions the word witness in verses 3, 6, and 12. Three times actually in verse 12. So this emphasizes the concept of verification for truth. See, the truth of God's Word isn't something that is just subjectively perceived. You don't have prophets going out and getting some kind of private subjective message. Whenever God revealed anything subjectively to a prophet, he confirmed it through external signs, wonders, and miracles. And so that people would know that this prophet was not someone who was just generating his own ideas. This is in contrast to Muhammad, when Muhammad claimed he had a revelation, which we call the Quran. When he claimed he had a revelation from uh, uh, the angel Gabriel, and of course he was rejected by the people in Mecca, so he headed north, and he was run out of town, and he headed north to Medina. One of the groups of people he tried to convince uh, in relationship to his his being a prophet were the Jews. He figured if he could convince the Jews that he was a prophet, that he would be well on the way to establishing the uh, his credentials. But the Jews were, were saying, okay, you claim to be a prophet, that's fine. Where are the confirming signs? Where are the miracles? Where's the evidence? God doesn't just uh, give you some sort of subjective impression that you're a prophet. He always has objective verification. And so they didn't see any signs or wonders or miracles associated with Muhammad. And furthermore, in the Quran, he couldn't even get the story of the Exodus right. And he made numerous mistakes related to both the Exodus and the wanderings of the Jews in, in, uh, in, in the desert. And the result was they just sort of laughed him out of town. As a result of that, he decided to be very vindictive, and that's why you have such a strong anti-Semitic element in Islam. It is inherently anti-Semitic because it is a belief that is the spawn of Satan. I didn't say the people are the spawn of Satan. I said the religious system is the spawn of Satan. So there are always confirmatory witnesses, objective validation for the truth of God's word. And another element that is evident in Third John is that the elder, that is the Apostle John, is establishing the authority of the truth over against this power play in the congregation that is, um, that is the result of Diotrephes' desire to be preeminent because of his own power lust 
and his own approbation lust. So this is a background for understanding the situation that John is addressing in this epistle. So let's begin by looking at that uh, that first verse. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love by means of the truth. Let's begin by evaluating the first word, the elder. This is the Greek word presbyteros. The Greek word presbyteros, which has been transliterated into English as presbyterian or presbyter. This is what it looks like in the Greek. P-R-E-S... B-U-T-E-R-O-S. And it basically means someone who is old or elderly, someone who is in a position of seniority, someone who is in a position of authority. It literally refers to someone who is physically older, but it comes to refer also to those who are more mature, those who are in positions of leadership, and those who are spiritually mature. It is one of the words used in the New Testament to describe a pastor-teacher. So let's look at the biblical terms for a pastor. Biblical terms for the pastor-teacher in the New Testament. First of all, we ought to look at a key passage, which is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. So hold your place in 3 John and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 11. Hebrews 4, 11 and 12 gives the mission statement for the local church and for four categories of ministry. The mission statement for the local church in four categories of spiritual gifts or ministries. He himself gave some apostles, prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the purpose of, purpose clause, for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith, that is, unity of doctrine, and of the knowledge about the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That gives the whole thought. God, or Jesus Christ here in this passage, is envisioned as the one who is an authority over the Holy Spirit, who from 1 Corinthians 12 we know is the one who distributes spiritual gifts. And Jesus Christ provides four specific spiritual gifts for the equipping of the saints. That's every believer. The purpose of these gifts is to equip the saints. Now, there are four gifts listed here, not five. They are apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. Now, apostles and prophets were temporary gifts that died out at the end of the first century. By 90 A.D., uh, they were virtually gone uh, the Apostle John was the last apostle to die, and he died about 95 A.D., and on his death there were no more apostles and there were no more prophets. The only two gifts that survived through the church age are, first of all, the gift of evangelist and the gift of pastor-teacher. Now, the reason the gift of pastor-teacher is combined into one gift is because in the structure of this particular uh, Greek phrase, you have one article plus a noun plus the conjunction and plus another noun. If they were two different gifts, you would have a repetition of the article. This is a, uh, a structure called the hendiades, which means that the two nouns are viewed as synonymous. Actually, the second one provides a definition for how the first one functions. But before we get to that, we need to break down the words. This first word that is used is the word poimain, which means a shepherd. Poimain means a shepherd and denotes the shepherd's leadership over over the flock. Poimain means a shepherd and denotes the shepherd's leadership over the flock. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd is the one who guides the sheep 
into a into a pasture where they can eat where they can provide for their physical nourishment a pastor is a, the one who uh watches over them and protects them from their enemies it is the shepherd who is the one who keeps the sheep from doing stupid things that would create uh, self-inflicted harm by analogy the term indicates the leadership role of the spiritual gift. The leadership role, just as a shepherd leads and directs the flock, so a pastor is to lead and direct the congregation. Leadership necessarily includes the concept of authority. It is not, you do not have many shepherds over one flock. You have one shepherd who understands the vision, the goals, the objectives for that particular flock, and he is the one who is responsible to God for that flock in terms of the analogy of a pastor. He is, he is responsible to God for how that flock is provided for. There can therefore be only one leader and one vision for a congregation. It is not a multiple leadership situation and or a, a, a multiple vision. God has given that pastor, that man, a vision for where that congregation should go during the term of that particular pastor's ministry. Some pastors have the privilege of being in a location for many, many years. We know that John, the Apostle John, was in Ephesus for probably 20 years or so at the end of his his life. After the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., he moved up into the area of Asia Minor, and so he had a long-term pastorate there. But where is he pastoring? He's pastoring in Ephesus. We know that Paul was in Ephesus for a couple of years. Timothy was in Ephesus for a few years. Apollos was in Ephesus for a few years. There were many different pastors there. Some of them were there for just a short time, a couple of years. Others were there for a much longer time. So congregations will experience different pastoral terms, and God has designed uh, these men to come in for particular terms, whether it's for two or three years or 20 or 30 years or 50 years, in order to provide a ministry to that congregation and to lead that congregation under God's authority. Now, we have to understand some things about how this leadership gift functions. There are certain parameters to how the shepherding operation functions. No a pastor can fulfill his mission of equipping the saints unless he is teaching the mystery doctrine of the church age. He fulfills his teaching mission primarily by teaching the mystery doctrine related to the church age. This does not mean he ignores the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. And if you don't understand what's in the Old Testament, you will have a difficult time with the New Testament. So there are three things that are important for the pastor. First of all, he has to possess the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. This is, needs to be identified in the process of his own spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and is usually evidenced by the efficacy of his ability to teach. Every now and then I have a, a young man or in some cases an older man who, who says that they believe they have the gift of pastor-teacher. And I usually respond by saying, well, how do you know that? How many times, where do you teach? What impact are you having on those whom you teach? And every now and then somebody says, well, you know, I've never really taught. Well, then how do you know you have the gift of pastor-teacher? You may think you do. Go get involved in some local church somewhere. Go get involved in a Bible class somewhere and start teaching the Word and see if you indeed enjoy it. You see how you do on a day-to-day basis of doing some studying and organizing your material and, and presenting it and see what kind of response you have from those you teach. So you have to identify the possession of the spiritual gift. You have to also prepare the spiritual gift. That is important. A pastor doesn't just go out and start pastoring. There has to be preparation for the gift. You just don't say, oh, golly, Joe, you'd make a good shepherd. Let me give you my flock of a thousand sheep and go out there and start uh, shepherding the flock. 
Uh, he doesn't know anything about sheep. He's never done it before. There's been no training. There has to be a time of preparation. Unfortunately, there are some men who think that because they've watched a shepherd, they've sat under a shepherd, they've listened to a shepherd, that somehow they can go from the pew to the pulpit without going through the training. And there are some people who think that they can simply rely upon the exegetical skills of another pastor in order to be able to pastor the sheep. What was uh, enjoyable for me this past week was to go down to Houston where I taught a two-day seminar on Greek for people who don't know Greek. There are many pastors who've never had the opportunity to study the original languages. And we live in a time today when with computer tools and some published works, a pastor can, who's never really studied the languages can do so much more than any pastor ever could do before in human history. But they still have to go through training and how to use the computer tools and how to understand the basics of grammar and syntax in Greek. And there was a man there who's pastored for over 10 years and doesn't know Greek, never studied the original languages, and his comment to me after the first two hours was, I've been fooling myself for 10 years into thinking that I could do what I do without learning the languages, that it really wasn't necessary. What I learned in just these first two hours is that I have to know the Greek. This is non-negotiable. You see, and there's too many sheep who are willing to get a shepherd who's never taken the time to go through the study. You know, they just think that because he has the gift of pastor-teacher and the gift of gab, that this is valid. It is not valid under any rules of the Bible. These men need to get out of the pulpit and get their butts back in school and go through the academic discipline and learn the original languages. This should never be a negotiable item. It is simply a matter of laziness irresponsibility on the part of anyone with a gift of pastor-teacher to think that they can pastor without at least two years of Greek and two years of Hebrew. It is unacceptable. So we learn several things from the analogy with the with sheep, and one of which is that you would never uh, give a, a flock of sheep to a man who had not was not trained to be a shepherd. So let's learn some things about sheep from this analogy. There are several important things we can observe just by uh, looking at sheep. First of all, a sheep cannot guide himself. A sheep has no inner sense of direction. You can sometimes take a cat or a dog, blindfold them, take them two or three miles from your house, drop them off, and two or three days later they're back at home. They have a sense of direction. Sheep have no sense of direction. You take a sheep out and blindfold it and drop it off somewhere, you'll never see that sheep again. In the same way, a pastor must guide the people in the pew. See, God calls the folks in the pew sheep. That is not a compliment. It's not talking about the fact that they're nice and soft and fluffy. It is talking about the fact that they're that they're basically incapable of doing anything and they're totally helpless and under any circumstance they will do the wrong thing just following their own natural inclination. So the pastor is to guide the sheep, but how does he do it? Well, this is jumping ahead a minute to our second word for teacher that we have in Ephesians 4.11. The, the role of pastoring is really restricted to teaching. He's a pastor teacher. How does he pastor? He does it through teaching. It is teaching the Word of God on a verse-by-verse, line-upon-line, precept-upon-precept methodology. It is a pastor who knows how to study the Word, pastor who has an accurate understanding of the principles of hermeneutics, and I have just finished reading what is a mandatory book for all pastors, a book by a professor out at uh, Master's Seminary in California. His name's Robert Thomas. It's called Evangelical Hermeneutics, uh, The Old and the New. And it is a devastating expose and critique of how hermeneutics in traditional evangelical seminaries has made a subtle shift in the last 30 years. Uh, I hate to say this, but baby boomers have destroyed traditional hermeneutics. It's, uh, it's incredible how many 
uh, seminary professors who have gone off and gotten their second doctorates or their first doctorate at some liberal school have picked up uh, very subtly one idea or another, taken it back, and began to teach it in their classes, and then that eventually bears very negative fruit. So you have to have a pastor who's trained in the original languages, trained in theology, trained in hermeneutics, trained in church history, and above all, a man who is trained to think. That's the greatest tool of a pastor teacher is that he has critical thinking skills, not someone who can just uh, regurgitate what somebody else has said, but somebody who knows how to think analytically and critically and on his own and not, not someone who is simply a parrot of someone else. So first of all, a sheep cannot guide himself, so the pastor-teacher guides through the teaching of the Word of God. Second, a sheep cannot cleanse himself. Uh, a dog or cat can lick themselves. They can roll in the grass. You can you see horses that get dirty or muddy, and they'll be rolling on their back sometimes trying to uh, uh, get clean in some, some sense. But sheep never do that. They'll just get dirtier and dirtier and filthier and filthier. But it is the pastor who must teach believers about the concept of forgiveness of sin so that after, when, after they sin, they can confess their sins to God and be cleansed from all post-salvation sin. So a sheep cannot cleanse himself, but a pastor-teacher teaches the principles of how the believer uh, can be cleansed from post-salvation sins. Third, a sheep is a defenseless animal. A defenseless animal. Most animals have some form of defense, either through their teeth or claws, their speed, or some system of camouflage. But the only protection the sheep has is the shepherd. If the shepherd isn't doing his job, the sheep will be destroyed. And the same way, by analogy, the pastor protects the sheep by teaching the truth and by exposing error. What I have learned is often you have to name a few names and be a little more precise in exposing error because sheep do not always click as to uh, how to apply general principles of theology. And I've seen congregations where you have, where I have gone through and, and exposed a theological system point by point and where I'm talking about a particular, in, in one case I was talking about a specific individual who has an, a national ministry always on television every morning, and I was he had just sent a new book out to every pastor in the country, and it was called A Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. And so I was doing a critique of this book without mentioning his name. I thought that would be a, the gentlemanly thing to do. And after church, within the next week, I happened to have two people who were there who made a comment about how wonderful they thought this particular individual was. They never made the connection. So because I didn't name his name, most of the sheep just, just kept right on wallowing in the, in the false teaching. So you have to paint the picture quite clear, clearly and make sure the lens is precisely focused because the sheep do not jump from generalities to application very easily. So the pastor has to give them the information they need so that they can develop some critical thinking skills and avoid false teaching. Fourth, a sheep is helpless when he is injured. A sheep is helpless when he is injured. He is completely dependent upon the shepherd to care for his wounds, to wash out his wounds, to give him medicine, to bind up his wounds. And in the same sense, when a, a, a believer is injured through suffering, through adversity, through hardships in life, it is the pastor teacher who helps him recover from his injuries through the teaching of the mechanics of the spiritual life, the ten problem-solving devices, so that the believer can recover from those injuries and handle them through the grace mechanics that God has supplied for the believer in the Christian life. Fifth point, the sheep cannot find food or water for himself. You put sheep within 50 yards of a water hole and they won't find it. The sheep cannot find food or water for himself. Most animals can smell or detect water, find food for themselves, but a sheep is dependent upon the shepherd to provide food and water uh, for the sheep. In the same sense, it is the pastor, teacher, that 
gifting of a man with the gift of pastor teacher who communicates the truth to the congregation. The congregation cannot feed itself. Sheep cannot feed themselves. You can read your Bibles and you should read your Bibles so that you are familiar with, with the concepts and content of the Scriptures, so that you're familiar with the characters in the Scripture, so you re-familiarize yourself with the promises of God in the Scripture, but you cannot feed yourself from the Scripture. It is necessary to have the pastor-teacher. That is why God gives the pastor-teacher to the church. Sixth point of analogy, a sheep is easily frightened or panicked. A sheep is easily frightened or panicked, and the pastor or the shepherd calms the sheep either with his voice or with music. For example, David would play the lyre, and as he spoke to the sheep or sang to the sheep, it would calm them. By analogy, it is the teaching of the pastor that prepares the sheep for any and every emergency or disaster in life so that they can remove fear, worry, and anxiety from their life as they apply the principles of doctrine. So pastors provide teach doctrine so that the sheep will not succumb to mental attitude sins like fear, worry, and anxiety. Seventh, the sheep produces wool as a result of the care of the shepherd. By analogy, as the pastor teaches the Word of God, and as the believer takes in the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and abides in Christ and walks by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is produced. And as that fruit of the Spirit is produced, it gives testimony to the will of God and to the grace of God, and God is glorified. So the sheep, just as the sheep produces wool as a result of the care of the shepherd, the people in the congregation produce the fruit of the Spirit as a result of the teaching of the pastor teacher. And then eighth, sheep are the only animals in all of nature that cannot live on their own. They cannot survive on their own. They cannot live in isolation. They must be taken care of by a shepherd. In the same way, believers cannot live in isolation from the body of Christ and from a pastor teacher. They cannot just go out there and live on their own. Many have tried and they always fall into carnality. And what I always find is that there's a few who think they've managed to make it, but they're some of the most arrogant, screwed up people I've ever met. And just because they can talk the talk and they can repeat a lot of verbiage, they think somehow they're spiritually mature, but they are spiritual basket cases. So there is a purpose for the pastor in order to lead the sheep. Now, how does he do it? This is the second word that we're going to look at. The first word was pastor, the Greek word poimen. It is used in a hendiadis construction with the second word didaskalos. See, there's a lot of ways that a shepherd takes care of sheep. How do you define, in that sense, it's a metaphor. But not everything that a shepherd does to sheep is analogous to something a pastor would do to a congregation. I have a good friend of mine who took care of sheep for many years, and he's described to me some of the things he has to do to take care of the parasites that get into the sheep and, and some of the, you know, the ticks and all of the other things. I'm not going to go into any more detail because it gets rather graphic, and you certainly want, wouldn't want me doing any of those things to you. So you have to realize that the Bible is going to define the parameters of the metaphor. See, some people think, oh, he's such a good pastor. He goes to the hospital whenever there's somebody sick, and he always goes and visits the, the, the uh, homebound, and he always does this, and he's such a friendly, compassionate, caring person. And that's what they think pastor means. But see, the Bible defines and restricts the parameters of pastor by this second noun, pastor Teacher, And this fits perfectly with what Jesus told the disciples in John 21. He said to Peter three times, If you love me, feed my sheep. 
He didn't say, if you love me, go to the hospital and take care of them when they're in the hospital. He didn't say, go visit everybody in town. He didn't say, get involved in political activism. He said, feed my sheep. At the judgment seat of Christ, uh, pastors are going to be evaluated on one and only one thing. Did you feed my sheep? Most pastors today are concerned about building a large church. They're into the church growth movement. They want huge congregations, and so they're out there trying to build a church. And the first thing that is lost, the first casualty of the church growth movement is doctrine and truth. Because most people don't want truth, so you have to water it down to make it more palatable so more people will show up. So... They forget that Jesus said, I will build my church, you feed the sheep. Most pastors are out there trying to uh, build the church, and they're, they want the amateurs, the Sunday school teachers, to feed the sheep. But most Sunday school teachers uh, don't know very much because their only source of knowledge is the pastor. And if the pastor is not teaching in detail so that the Sunday school teachers can learn the truth, then who in the church is doing it? The pastor is the one who supposedly went through seminary. He's the trained professional. He's the one who has the education. And yet, in most churches, they're relying on some second-rate amateurs who read a couple of books and have a Sunday school quarterly to guide them to uh, train and teach the rest of the congregation. And the result is most Christians are spiritually anemic and they're starving to death and they don't even know it. So the pastor's job is defined by the second word, teaching. How does he shepherd? By teaching. He is a pastor teacher. He's not a pastor caregiver. He's not a pastor visitor. He is a pastor teacher. See, God has distributed other spiritual gifts for those other functions. You have people who have the gift of mercy. It's the people with the gift of mercy who should be visiting folks in the hospital because they know how to exercise their gift with doctrine and to exercise compassion through the communication of doctrine. I have known a few people who have the gift of mercy, and it is incredible to watch that gift functioning when they go to the hospital or they go deal with somebody who's going through some kind of adversity problem. So the second word in Ephesians 4.11 emphasizes the, or restricts the function of pastor to teaching. A third word that is used in the New Testament to refer to the leader of the congregation is episkopos. Episcopos. This is a word that meant overseer. This would be the supervisor, the one who guard, is the guardian of the flock or a superintendent. This emphasizes his authority in some sense, that he is the, the overseer of the congregation. He is the one who is the policy maker and the one who directs the congregation. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. First used in First Timothy three one to two, Titus one seven, and First Peter two twenty five and five two. Episcopos. This is the word that was transliterated over into English as episcopal. And early in the church, in the early part of the first century, there de- developed a a terrible uh, form of government called the. Uh, bishopric. The Episcopos, the Episcopal government in the early church in the second century, what would happen is you would have, thanks, if you would have a, a past, uh, several ch- congregations in a town, then they decided they really needed somebody who was overseeing those five congregations. So they would take one of those pastors and elevate him uh, in, as an authority over those five congregations. And he was referred to as the monarchical bishop. Monarchical bishop meaning he was the ruling bishop over the other congregations. Now, there was no biblical authorization for that kind of function, the Bible authorizes individual uh, congregations and for each congregation to be autonomous and independent. Well, the development of the monarchical bishop eventually led to the idea of an episcopacy or a hierarchy where they began to distinguish between a pastor and a bishop, and then eventually they developed the idea of a pope because they developed these regional hierarchies. And in the early church between the 2nd and 4th century, you had five major cities, I believe. You had Rome, Constantinople, 
Constantinople, uh, Antioch in Syria, Jerusalem, which was fading fast after 70 A.D. There were very few believers left in Jerusalem, but since that was the place where Jesus was crucified, it maintained a bishopric, and then down in Egypt in Alexandria. And so each of these elements were major geographical areas, and you had major bishoprics in those areas, and they ruled these various uh, territories. Over the course of time, between the 2nd and the 6th century, when you had your various uh, various Christological controversies and theological controversies, almost the key guy in every one of these locations identified themselves with a heresy. And as a result of that, it was the guy in Rome who seemed to always have the right idea about how everything was supposed to be done. And so they thought that the bishop in Rome must be specifically uh, uh, blessed by God. And so he became elevated in authority. And this is what gave rise to the position of Pope, which is the, the uh, Latin or Italian for Papa. And he was the, the father. So they looked to, to the bishop of Rome as the leader of the church. And that is how Episcopal government got started, but that is not what the Bible means by episkopos. It simply emphasizes the leadership role, the authority role, the supervisory role of the pastor teacher. In other words, it is sometimes used in reference to a, a pastor as he's called a minister. The word in the Greek is diakonos, which originally meant someone who waited on tables. And so the emphasis here is on the the pastor teacher as someone who is a servant of the congregation. And he serves the congregation by teaching them the word of God. The fourth word that's used is presbyteros, the word we have here in uh, 3 John 1. Presbyteros emphasizes this individual's seniority and authority. Not that he is necessarily physically older, but that he is the uh, senior leader, the highest authority in the local congregation. This word is used in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 19, Titus 1, 5, uh, James 5, 14, and 1 Peter 5, 1. Every local church has only one leader. Some people, uh, the presbyteros came to be used for the Presbyterian form of government, which emphasized leadership by a committee known as elders. And I have been in some elder-ruled churches where the pastor was basically viewed as the hired uh, hireling of the board of elders, and everything he did had to come under the authority and the permission of this group of elders. But the, many times you have real problems because the pastor has one vision, the elders have another vision, and then you just have trouble. Two other words that are used are fifth, that are related to one another. The noun is kerux, which means, which was originally a term describing the herald of the king, the person who went out announcing the decisions of the monarch, the policies of the monarch. A kerux went through the city and streets of a town and simply announced uh, whatever the king had for them to announce. He didn't stop and discuss it. He didn't uh, entertain questions. He just went through the streets making the announcements. And the verb keruso is the verb meaning to proclaim the plan and the policy of the king. These two words describe the function of the pastor teacher. He is to proclaim the policies and the plans of God and to teach that to the congregation. Now, that's about as much time as we have this morning in terms of covering the basic words for pastor-teacher. Next time, we will conclude our study on a pastor-teacher by looking at the at principles for training of the pastor-teacher, and then we will go on to begin to look at the doctrine of friendship in the Bible, the doctrine of friendship in the Bible, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word, to come to a greater understanding of the uh, way you have provided for the spiritual nourishment of every believer through the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. 
Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your opportunity to do so. Right now, right where you're sitting, in the privacy of your soul, you can make your eternal destiny sure and certain. Jesus Christ, who is undiminished deity and true humanity, died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. If you believe that and trust in him alone for your salvation, then at that instant God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and declares you justified. He also imputes to you eternal life, which you can never lose, and you will have an eternal destiny in heaven. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand these things. We pray that you would help us to apply what we have learned today as we come to a greater appreciation your, for your plan and purposes during the church age. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.